She said, on race day, plan like crazy. Like just, I mean, have your plan down to every detail of what you're gonna do at every transition, what you're gonna do for nutrition, what you're gonna do in, in case things get hard early, what you're gonna do if any number of variables start to happen. Plan like crazy. And then when you get to race day, plan that every single one of your plans is going to fail and you're gonna have to make it up on the go. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. A couple weeks ago, I finished my first ever ultra marathon. It was a 50-mile race out in Pine, Colorado, and it was just such a wonderful experience. And as I was on that run, I just kind of reflected on the fact, like, why do I do this? And and there were some points of that 50-mile day where I was like, why do I do this? And then there were other days where it's like, okay, why do I actually do this? And man, the answers to that question range from simple all the way to profound. And the most simple one is like, literally, I don't I don't know. I, I mean, at this point now, I've done 23 marathons. I've done two Ironmans, which is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike and a marathon, a 26.2 mile run. And then now I've done one 50 mile ultra marathon and I'm, I'm planning on doing some more. So it goes all the way from like, I'm not entirely sure why I do that to maybe another good reason is like, well, it beats all the other alternative things that there are to do. It's a great way to spend your time. But, but then I think the most profound found and probably the most accurate reason to why I keep coming back to endurance racing is something that I just enjoy, that that I love, that I invest, I mean, really outrageous amounts of time, energy, and money into is this principle. When you go further than you thought you could go, you learn lessons you never even knew you could learn. And so if you really were to ask me, okay, well, why do you do it? Why have you spent, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of hours getting ready for these races, thousands of dollars to enter these races, and then serious amounts of time and energy to participate in these races? Why do you do it? Well, I I think it's that principle. When you go further than you thought you could go, you learn lessons that you never even knew you could learn. And I mean, it should be no secret to you that I love learning, right? Because learning is directly connected to the topic of growth that we're so passionate about within this podcast and within our business, Path for Growth. And so I'm constantly trying to extract lessons and extract principles and find tendencies and trends that can be applied in specific scenarios and specific environments and then extrapolated to other environments. And what I've noticed in endurance racing is that there's so many things related to endurance when you're running or you're biking or you're swimming that just transcend those activities altogether. And I would tell you, I'm a radically stronger and more wise and more effective man. I'm a radically stronger, wise, more effective uh, leader. And I'm a radically stronger, wise, and more effective business person because of the lessons that I've learned from these endurance races. And so it was in that context that I sat down to write an episode. I said, we need something that's a little bit more encouraging because we're spending a fair amount of time talking about recession and talking about being in the dip and being in the valley and all that. What's some things that we could encourage people with that are lessons focused on endurance? 
Now, before we jump into these lessons, I want to tell you that I, I sat down to write five of them. And true to form, I wrote down the title, Five Lessons from Endurance Racing. And by the time I had finished the content, we had 13 lessons from endurance racing, each with their own story. So as we've done before, I think we're going to split this into a two-part episode where we kind of walk through these lessons. And each lesson will have a storyline or anecdote associated with them from a particular race. But before we jump into that, here's something that I want to make sure you know. You hearing and understanding these lessons is good. You living these lessons is way better. And I will tell you, there is no substitute for experiential learning. And so, yes, you can learn something about endurance by listening to this podcast, but nothing will teach you about endurance like you signing up for something that would cause you to have to endure. And so maybe for you right now, that's a 5K, maybe it's a 10K, maybe it's a half marathon, maybe it's a marathon, maybe it's an Ironman. Because I've been doing this so long now, I've just seen so many people take that jump. And they said, I've always had it on my mind that I wanted to do a half marathon, or I've always had it on my mind that I wanted to train for a marathon, or I've always had it on my mind that I wanted to do five at five or do a triathlon. And, and I always kind of sat on the edge. And, and I've seen so many people finally take that leap courageously into what feels like uncertain territory. Like, man, this is a, a finish line I deem worth pursuing, but I'm, I'm not positive I can get there. I'm not positive I can cross that finish line. But they take the step, they take the jump. Here's what I I've seen every single time someone has the courage to take that step. I've never once seen someone regret it. Never once. And so you should take that for what it's worth. Now, just because they didn't regret it, I can't guarantee you, you won't. I mean, you might. And so it's a little bit of a leap of faith regardless, because you are the only you that there is. But what would it look like for you to sign up for something that would require you to endure that would require you to expand your limits of what has been previously possible, that would require and demand that you push yourself further than you've been before so that you learn lessons you never even knew you could learn. That's a question that I'm just going to let you sit with. And so it's in that context that I want to walk through some of the lessons that I've learned from these races. Uh, the first lesson is one that we actually talked about on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Endurance is an exercise in expectation setting. So for the first three marathons, something really interesting happened. Whenever I'd get to the starting line, I'd always give myself this pep talk and I'd say, man, this is going to be freaking awesome. I'm so stoked. This is just going to be such a great day. And I've done the training. This is just going to be an awesome race. And man, I'd have all this energy and the music would be pumping and there would be all these people. And I'd just be so amped, so stoked, so psyched, so ready to go. And so I just get this narrative in my head that this day is going to be absolutely awesome. And, and for the first about three hours, the day would be awesome and it would go so well. And then I'd hit like mile 21 to 23, somewhere around there. And I just get blindsided by what they call the wall, right? Which is hard to believe you get blindsided by a wall. And suddenly like everything sucked. Like it, my legs hurt. I didn't want to keep going. I was like, where'd this come from? This isn't awesome, right? And, and so I'd stop and walk. And for the first three marathons, that's what I did. Somewhere between mile 21 and 24. It wouldn't be a ton of walking, but I'd stop and walk. And, and then eventually I'd, I'd get to the finish line. 
And it was around that time between my third and fourth marathon that I learned a principle about expectations, and that's that people experience dissonance when their reality differs from their expectations. And and I took that principle that I learned in a business context and I applied it to my marathon running and I realized, man, the expectations that I'm setting is that this is going to be awesome. It's going to be great. It's going to be pain-free. And therefore, whenever I hit mile 22, my mental durability is not anywhere near where it needs to be to be able to deal with what reality actually is. And so I kind of ran a test on Marathon 4 and I said, what if I do my best at the starting line of Marathon 4 to align my expectations with what is reality? And so I'll never forget, I sat there and while everyone was getting all amped and cheering and everything, I just put on some quiet music and I literally just sat there and it was pretty cold outside. I had my hands in my pockets, I'll never forget this. And I literally just thought to myself, in about three hours, this is going to absolutely suck. And your legs are going to hurt so bad and your whole body is going to wish it wasn't here and you're just going to question why you're even doing this. And so just expect that this is really going to hurt in about three to maybe three hours and 15 minutes, but you're going to push forward anyway. And so what I was trying to do in that moment was to align my expectations with what was reality. And here's what happened. I got about three hours into the race. Man, things were going so good. I was feeling great. I had this pep in my step. And then with this particular race, I hit around mile 22 and it was like, wha-bam! I'm almost positive it was the Austin Marathon. It just like it hit me. It was on this particular hill up on 51st Street in, in North Austin. It's just like, just wham, it just hit me. And, and here's where my mind went. I said, oh, this is exactly what I expected. For the first time ever, I wasn't blindsided. I wasn't taken off guard. I wasn't disrupted by the pain or by the wall or by the fact that suddenly things got really hard. I just said, this is what I expected. This is what I anticipated. And for the first time ever, I was able to run all 26.2 miles. Endurance is an exercise in expectation setting. And so for you, in your life, in your leadership, in your business, if you want to endure, you would be wise to align your expectations with reality. What's reality? There's going to be some great times ahead, and there's going to be some really cool pieces of your life, of your leadership, of your business that are going to be really, really awesome for you to be a part of. And you know what else is reality? There's going to be some seasons that just flat out suck. There's going to be some valleys. There's going to be some hardships. There's going to be some trials. There's going to be some things that push you to the limit, and you're going to want to walk, but you're not going to. You're going to keep moving forward. Why? Because when those things happen, what will you say? You will say, this is what I expected. Endurance is an exercise in expectation setting. Okay, let's go to number two. Those who endure plan for their plan to fail. (laughs) These all sound so positive, don't they, right? I promise they're not all like so defeating in nature, right? But, But think about this. Those who endure plan for their plan to fail. So so I learned this one prior to my first Ironman, which again, that's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a 26.2 mile run. And I was maybe a month before the race and I was swimming out at a lake 
um, off of Breaker Lane in Austin, Texas. And it was a little bit cold outside, if I remember correctly. And so I had on my wetsuit and I, I had gone for my swim that day and it was it was a good swim and I was feeling good about the, the race that was coming up. I think I trained for about nine months for that race. And so really uh, kind of followed a methodical plan to be ready. And I, I was in probably the best shape of my life at that time. And, and I was just pumped. I was ready. And, and I'll never forget, I got out on the dock and uh, got out of the water and was a little bit chilly, but I saw these two women women kind of walking up to the dock and man, there's just some people in uh, kind of the endurance arena that you can literally just look at them and you can tell they're legit. And I don't know what it is because sometimes it's the gear and that was certainly the case here. Like their goggles were legit, their swim caps were legit, their wetsuits were like super fancy, right? And and I mean, triathlon especially can be a little bit of a money sport. Like you can spend a lot of money on the right gear. But then also there's something about their body type or maybe it's the veins that are popping out of their arms. I'm not sure what it is, but you can just tell like, oh, these people, this is not their first rodeo. And, and so I, I just said, oh, gosh, are y'all training for a triathlon? And they mentioned that they were getting ready for an Ironman and said, awesome. And I said, have you done one before? And I'm pretty sure the woman said like, oh, yeah, I've done eight. It's like, wow, mind blowing. And, and so I just asked her, I said, do you have any tips? My first race is here in about a month. And I'll never forget. She paused for a moment. And then she looked at me and she said, OK, she said on race day, plan like crazy. Like just, I mean, have your plan down to every detail of what you're going to do at every transition, what you're going to do for nutrition, what you're going to do in, in case things get hard early, what you're going to do if any, any number of variables start to happen. Plan like crazy. I want you to have plan A. I want you to have plan B. I want you to have plan C. I want you to think about contingencies for the weather, for how your stomach's feeling, for how your legs are feeling, for where your mind's at that day. She said, plan like crazy. And then here's what she said. And then when you get to race day, plan that every single one of your plans is going to fail and you're going to have to make it up on the go. (laughs) So good. Just such powerful advice. And, and I'll tell you, that played true in the race. I remember that. And so I, I planned really diligently. And I would have done that regardless. But I very much held those plans with a loose grip. And the swim went well. But then on the bike, literally, I, I mean, gosh, I want to say it was at mile 62, my wheel just blew out, right? And there was no one around. And I I had to sit on the side and I had also lost one of my CO2 cartridges. So so I didn't have enough CO2 to get it back. So I had to wait on an aid cart to come and I'm sitting there on the side of the road trying to figure this all out. And and I just had to sit there and remind myself like, okay, it's not going according to plan. And kind of related to the first principle, that's what you expected. It's okay. We're just going to make this up as we go and we're going to figure it out. And so we figured that out. And then I hit the run and this is where it really came to play because I knew I could solve for, for the blown out tire. I'm on the run and I think I'm at about mile eight. And truly the forecast for the day was like sunny blue skies. I'm at mile eight and you look up ahead and there's just these pretty massive, ominous dark clouds. And at first I thought it was my sunglasses. And then I pulled my sunglasses down. I was like, oh no, that's not the sunglasses. Like those are legit. And 
things started to cool down, which I was like, that's pretty welcome. That's pretty nice because I think it was in the 80s that day in Houston, Texas. But then the clouds that were far off in the distance started becoming very present and very real. And I kid you not, this is not an exaggeration. Almost instantly, it went from being blue skies to one of the most torrential downpours with the most wild lightning I've literally ever seen. And we're in the middle of this marathon that we're running at the end of what is already a 140-mile day. And, and I mean, I'm just running and it's like, what on earth? And I'll never forget, there were some people by that that were literally thrown for a loop, right? Because they had their plan. Their plan didn't forecast for rain. And man, it was like it, they just went into this mental and emotional tailspin. They became outrageously negative. They just started walking and slogging through the water. And they they started saying like, this is ridiculous. And they started complaining. <laughs> and it's like, who exactly are you blaming for global weather patterns right now? Are you blaming Iron Man? Because I don't, I don't think they have much control over this. And, and, and so what can you do? Well, really, all you can do is smile and enjoy running in the rain. And so you kind of had to abandon plan. But but man, I'll tell you, it was the people that were holding their plan with the tightest grip that weren't able to enjoy the remainder of that day. Those who endure plan for their plan to fail. Plan like crazy. Plan A, plan B, plan C for your life, for your leadership, for your business. And then just anticipate that all those plans are going to fail and that you're going to have to make it up as you go. Okay, let's go to number three. Effort never sustainably exceeds belief. So this was another one that I learned training for Ironman. It was for my second Ironman. And I signed up, I believe, about seven to eight months before. And this was the first ever triathlon that I ever worked with a coach for. And and so that's such a gift because he really laid out the training plan that I was going to follow in preparation for this race. And that training plan was really rooted around peaking about, I want to say, five, four to five weeks before the race. And it was like going to reach this peak moment. And then we were going to start tapering gradually off so that my fitness level at the race was going to be optimal and I was going to be ready to go. And so we're about five, six weeks before the race. Things are going really well. I had by far spent more time in the pool at that point than I ever had in my entire life. I had done more brick workouts than I ever had in my entire life. And I had spent more time on the bike over the course of the past six to eight months than I ever had in my entire life. And so I was feeling really, really good about the prospects for the race. And we're about five to six weeks before the race. We're smack dab in the middle of what is, gosh, probably at that time, 20 to 25 hours a week of training. And a hurricane hits Panama City, which is where the race is supposed to occur. And man, it it just wiped out the city of Panama City. Now, obviously, primarily, that was just devastating for that area. But as you can imagine, the Facebook group that existed for everyone that was signed up for this race just went into like this emotional, doubtful season of like, what's going to happen? And everyone just kind of assumed, man, I don't think we're going to be able to do this race in Panama City anymore. And I I bet they're going to cancel it. But Iron Man had said, hey, we're not going to release our game plan for what we're going to do with this race 
for another week and a half to two weeks as we start to see kind of things pan out and we, we have time to sit down with the city when they have time to prioritize this. And so everyone's basically just in this holding pattern. Meanwhile, you're in what is supposed to be some of the most intense training that you've done leading up to race day. And, and I'll never forget it. It's like, you're getting ready and you've got all this motivation and you're constantly thinking about this finish line and the ability to go out on race day and perform really well. And my motivation and momentum was only increasing in those last few weeks. And then it was like this occurred and suddenly the possibility that the race would actually be there was sucked out. Suddenly there was a little bit of doubt that was introduced saying, hey, this could potentially all be for nothing. And suddenly it was like all motivation, all desire to invest any effort, all momentum went to a zero. I'll never forget, I, I had a workout in the pool. It was a Friday night in this waiting period, in this holding period. And I literally sat on the edge of the pool for like 15 minutes, just thinking to myself, I don't want to be here right now. And the reason why is because I don't even know if this is going to happen anymore. Like, I don't even believe this is this race is actually going to occur. And so I, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why I'm doing this. Effort never sustainably exceeds belief. Whenever we remove the belief that the finish line we're working towards might not be possible, might not be available, might not be something we get to engage in, your ability to sustainably invest the effort required to get there is just going to absolutely plummet. It's going to free fall. Because again, if you don't believe that it's even going to happen, you're not going to have the tenacity to invest the sweat, tears, and time into trying to get to a destination that might not even exist. And so this is why vision is so clear for your life, your leadership, and your business. This is why you've got to have a purpose and a, a finish line that you actually believe is possible because otherwise you shouldn't be surprised whenever you find yourself investing mediocre effort. Because why would you ever play all out to something that you don't even believe is possible? That, that's, I mean, that's actually called being intelligent, right? Because why would you ever play all out towards an end that you don't even believe it's possible. Now, I'm not saying the end is guaranteed, but man, you've got to believe that it's possible. And if you're doubting whether or not it's even going to happen, you're not going to work towards it. And so there's so many leadership parallels here for your business, for your team members, for your life. You got to be someone that guards and cultivates belief. Effort never sustainably exceeds belief. Okay, let's do a couple more for this part, and then we'll do the remainders on the second part of this series. Number four, the results everyone wants come from the routines nobody sees. This is a lesson that really stands out from the one ultra marathon that I just did. That was the 50-mile race and the two Ironmans that I've done. Those are the three races where something really unique and specific occurred. Those are the only three times where I've had, I mean, just handfuls of people look at me at the start line and say, congratulations. And the first time it happened, it kind of caught me off guard because I, I literally looked at him and I said, well, I haven't done anything yet, kind of joking. And the person that said, congratulations, they were clearly one of these veterans that had been there before. And they looked at me and they said, you and I both know that's not true. And here's what I want you to hear is that the results that everyone wants, the finish lines that everyone wants to be able to cross, and we're talking metaphorically now, they come from the routines that nobody sees. 
And that's what everyone at the starting lines of those races was aware of is like, man, you did the work. And we know that just by product that you're here today. And so the fact that you did the work that got you to the starting line in the first place, that is worthy of congratulations. And this race day where there's a bunch of spectators and there's a bunch of people watching and where there's a bunch of people taking photos and taking videos and you're all being celebrated is really just the celebration of all the work that's already been done. But what we so often see culturally is that because we do such a good job of highlighting the results, all of us who are looking from the outside in only see the results and we confuse the results with the routine. The routine is not celebrated. The routine doesn't have any photographers. The routine is not something that people cheer for. The routine is where there's literally no one watching at all. No one's clapping. There's not really anyone talking about you at all. The routine is remarkably boring, mundane, unsexy, and just literally tiresome. And I think so often we overvalue the results and we undervalue the routine. And people saying congratulations at the start line of these races flipped that paradigm on its head. And it said, man, we value the routines, the effort, the habits, the things that you did repeatedly and regularly to be able to achieve this result, not just the result itself. The results that everyone wants comes from the routines that nobody sees. And that's something that I constantly have to remind myself of with regard to our business, right? Because we, we do a lot of public-facing work now, and, and thankfully, it, it's getting more and more exposure, it seems like, by the day and by the week right now. But if I'm going to grow as a leader and as a communicator and as a businessman and as a person and as a Christ follower, my growth primarily is not going to come from me recording this podcast or from the speeches that I give or from the things that I write. It's going to come from the things that none of you see. And you do get to experience the outpouring of that growth, hopefully, because I want to pour it out in service of others. But it's not going to come from the things that I do publicly. It's going to come from the decisions that I make privately, the things that I do that no one's writing about because they're so freaking boring and mundane. It's not even funny. That's what we're talking about. The results everyone wants comes from the routines that nobody sees. Let's do two more. Coaching makes effort efficient. I've now worked with two coaches. One was for the Ironman that I discussed, and one was my coach Nicodemus for the ultra that I most recently did. And what working with a coach did for me was exactly what this principle says, is it made my effort, it made the energy that I was exerting efficient. Because what did the coach do for me? They defined the right path. So there's a lot of nuances to my physical abilities, my strengths, my weaknesses, anything I was struggling with from a a tweak or injury perspective, the races that I had done before, the areas where I was feeling unconfident and and lacking belief in myself, the, the areas that I didn't really understand about biking or swimming or running. There were unique nuances for me that really, for me to follow a correct training plan, needed to be considered and factored in. But then also... there's just such a principle associated with endurance racing that absolutely applies to life that there's a radical difference between working hard and working smart. And I learned that between my first Ironman and my second Ironman. One thing that changed between those two races and the training period of those two races 
was I gained a lot more responsibilities with regard to work and relationships in life between Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2. And I realized like my strategy for Iron Man 1 was just work really hard and just spend so much time swimming and biking and running. And that's not a horrible strategy. That'll get you across the finish line. And it's definitely the poor man's way of doing an Iron Man, right? But associated with me having more responsibilities, another difference between Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2 was I also had a little bit more money. And so I was able to pay someone to help me define not just how to work really hard, but how to work really smart. And so he helped me define the right path. And then my job became just executing on the path. And I can't tell you how helpful that is for me as a person. Like for this 50 miler, it was so helpful for me to know my job is not to figure out what I need to do for the next seven days, the next 14 days to make sure that I'm peaking at the right time, to make sure that my nutrition's right, to make sure that I'm getting in the right amount of gain and the right amount of endurance and the right amount of aerobic versus anaerobic time and, and that my heart rate's in the right spot. My job is just to do the work. And I pay a coach to to do all those other things, to lay out the path that if I follow this path, well, then I'm going to cross that 50 mile finish line. And man, what it did is it made my effort efficient. So, So he defined the right path alongside me, kind of factoring in the nuances of where I was at and where my body was at and what I was able to do. I executed on the path and then together we evaluated progress And then we just adjusted accordingly and we move forward. And man, I've taken that to so many other arenas in my life. Like I've taken that to my finances. I've taken that to my spiritual growth. And sometimes it looks like a formal coaching relationship. Sometimes it literally looks like a mentorship that I get really intentional about asking for mentorship. Sometimes it looks like me paying someone for a season to be a business coach or mentor for our organization. But what I'm looking for there is the ability to make my effort efficient and someone to have a high level view of things that's an expert on the specific craft or thing that I'm working on that can say, that can really invest the time and energy necessary to help me work smart instead of just hard. Coaching makes effort efficient. Okay, let's go to number six. Detachment is a difference maker. I'm gonna say it again. Detachment is a difference maker. This is a wild one that I actually haven't talked about with that many people. This is the second Ironman um, that I did. And so uh, to give a little bit of context related to the previous story, the race did happen, which is pretty amazing. They moved the race from Panama City, Florida to a place called Haines City, Florida, which you probably haven't heard of Haines City, Florida. And there's a pretty good reason why you haven't heard of Haines City, Florida. It's like really small. It's like a pretty podunk town. There's not much there. I learned that apparently Florida has hills, right? Which I learned at that race pretty wild. It was a pretty hilly race, which was a little bit unexpected, but that's another principle. So, I mean, it was legitimately a logistical feat that Ironman was able to move this race with thousands of athletes, uh, hundreds of volunteers needing road closures and supplies and resources and all of that. And in a matter of weeks, they were able to make that happen. I mean, literally, my mind is still blown that they were able to do that. But all that to say, it occurred in Haines City. And instead of the swim being in the beautiful, pristine, ocean of Panama City. And that's where it was going to be. I was so stoked about that. It was going to be my first ocean swim. It was in this thing that was somewhere between 
a pond and a lake (laughs) in the middle of Haines City, Florida, which is in central Florida. And because it wasn't big enough for a full 2.4 mile swim, this was the swimming route. It was up, over, down, over, up, over, down, over, and you do that twice. And that is just so you know, that's not an ideal swimming route. Like an ideal swimming route so people don't get piled up, so people aren't grabbing onto each other, all of this, right, is literally like out and back, right? And the more turns there are, the more people end up on top of each other and the more convoluted it gets, the more it slows you down. It just becomes really, really tough. But this is what the swim became. And, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Complain? we got to go for it. It's just amazing that they put this race together. And I'll never forget. I was so stoked for for the race. We were finally there. I was just thrilled that it was happening. And I'll never forget. I'm standing by the entrance to the water for the swim. And I see this sign that literally has an alligator on it. And the sign says no swimming. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. And, and, and later I heard they're like, oh yeah, I mean, we know they're in here. We just figured there's so many people that there's no way they're going to do anything. <laughs> Golly. Like, I, I don't really love that assumption that much. But all that to say, we, as I kind of got closer to the water, it became really evident really, really quick that, man, this is no Panama City water. It was dark. It was murky. It was pretty tepid. But it was actually a little bit chilly as well because this race was in, I believe it was in December or late November. And this is pretty wild what happened. So they fire the cannon. Like my heart is racing and I'm just like, amped. I'm pumped. Like I rush into the water. I kind of do high knees into the water if I remember correctly. And like that gets your heart rate up pretty quick. And I'm wearing a wetsuit because it was wetsuit legal, but it was right on the edge. And one of the things that you have to worry about with wearing a wetsuit whenever the temperature is right on the edge is overheating because that's definitely very possible. And so my heart rate spikes really quick, but I wasn't really paying attention to that. I was just like, this is it. Iron Man's happening. I've trained for six months. My training has been smarter than it's ever been. I've swam more than I've ever swam. I'm just going to crush this. And I start swimming. And I mean, I kid you not, it was like a hundred yards in. I just start like panicking and my breath is all out of control. I'm freaking out because I can't see anything. I mean, This is these races in general, but it was magnified in this race just because of the nature of where we were swimming. People are literally all over you. There's, I mean, there's arms that are hitting you in the face. People sometimes will literally grab your leg and pull you backward. You know, people will elbow you in the side. Some of it is definitely intentional. There's also some of it that it feels like a little bit too aggressive to not be just a little bit intentional, right? And and so, man, it's just a pretty wild atmosphere. And I think I started too quick and I think just a combination of everything happening and also the fact that it had been more than a year since I had swam in a wetsuit and I didn't think about the fact that it can almost be a little bit of a claustrophobic feeling if you don't allow yourself to get acclimated to it. And and I had forgotten about that and I wasn't ready for that because I hadn't spent much time in it even before that at all. And I just started panicking. And I mean, like literally... 100, maybe 150 yards in to a 140 mile race, I'm sitting there saying, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this. That is a scary thought, right? I mean, I, I like literally start going through my head, do I need to grab a buoy? And I think at that time, if you grab the buoy, you're like, you're done. You're disqualified. You're out because it's supposed to be an unassisted swim. And so I'm like, 
freaking out thinking, what is happening? What is going on? And that's just making things worse. And my heart just starts pounding faster and faster. And, and, and at one point, literally under 400 meters in, I'm turning on my back and doing backstroke. Now I've never had to do that in a pool ever. Like, oh, like I, I need to just keep my head above water and I need to do backstroke. And I'm like sitting there thinking, what is happening? How is this occurring right now? And man, that narrative isn't making things any better. And so I'm just like freaking out. And I'm sitting there on my back saying, what is that? Are you, are you literally like your family's here? What are you going to do? Are you literally going to drop out 400 meters into a 140 mile race? And I'm just freaking out. And, and I mean, it's the closest thing to a panic attack that I've ever experienced. And it was in that moment that I don't know what came over me. I, I just took a deep breath. And then I said, okay, well, that was good. And then I took like four more deep breaths and I was still on my back at this point. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to turn back around, turn over, go back to swimming the way we would normally swim. And we're going to treat this like it's just another Friday evening in the pool. Friday evenings were typically long swim days getting ready for this race. And this is just going to be like you're swimming at the Y. And what you're experiencing right now is not real. It, it's, it's the panic that you've generated. And I don't know how the ability to detach from where I was emotionally in that situation was, but it was almost like this, and this feels a little bit woo-woo to say, but it was almost like this out-of-body experience where I was able to, to view myself and I was able to say, dude, like this isn't real and this isn't good and we've got to do something different. And it was almost like I was coaching myself in that moment. And so sure enough, I turned back over and I, I literally just pictured I'm at the Y, I can see the, the line at the bottom of the pool and I'm just swimming back and forth and it's Friday evening and I'm just getting my strokes in just like I would any other day. And after I finish this, I'm going to go to Chipotle and then go hang out with people at my house after that. And it's just going to be a normal Friday night. And I literally just started to put myself in that position and I just started picturing it. And, I, and as I was doing that, I was just coaching myself of saying, okay, this is it. This is what you can do. This is correct. And, and I became detached from the emotions of the situation. And therefore, I was able to get myself back, literally back on track. And man, probably by about 800 meters, I was locked in and I was swimming just fine. And then that ended up being one of my fastest swims I've ever done. And certainly the rest of the race just killed. Like oh, one of the hardest moments of the race was the first 400 meters of the swim. For me in that moment, detachment was the difference maker. If I like by the grace of God, wasn't able to detach from where I was, that state of panic and just fear and just, I mean, absolute downward spiral of negativity in that moment, I'm, I'm not sure that I would have finished that race. I may, and this is a big may, I may have finished the swim, but I'm not sure that I would have finished the race. And, and so what does it look like for you in situations that are very emotionally laden to practice detachment, to get outside of yourself and to say, okay, what is required of me in this situation? 
Because typically what is required of you is not to be wrapped up and enmeshed in the emotions of the situation. Typically what is required of you is for you to be able to put on the hat of someone that is calm, of someone that is responsible, of someone that is wise, and of someone that is operating rationally instead of irrationally, logically instead of emotionally, and someone that has the ability to moderate the passions that are within them. And what that race taught me is that I have the ability to do that, to coach myself towards that level of detachment. There's a wonderful book that's kind of related to this. It's a little bit of a, I mean, ethereal book. It's, it's pretty wild, but it's called Awareness. And it just talks about you have the ability to get outside of yourself and that will actually help the version of you that's inside yourself. And I cannot tell you how since that race, I've practiced this in so many coaching conversations, in so many meetings. There were, I mean, high stakes conversations associated with me leaving my job, associated with me uh, becoming the host of the Entree Leadership Podcast. There were some pretty high stakes things that happened, I mean, literally in the months following that race that I practiced this tactic of detachment and it just had incredible effects for me and the people in the room with me because it makes sure that I actually treat people the way that I want to treat people and don't just get caught up in the heat of emotion. Detachment is a difference maker. Okay, that feels like a good place to wrap up for today. We're going to do the final seven on part two of this series. So if you're not subscribed to this podcast, we'd love to have you subscribe. Also, uh, so many of you have written a review for this, and that's always so helpful for me. I read those reviews, and it really helps us understand what content is good, what what you'd like to see change, things like that. So if you haven't yet written a review, just know that I really appreciate whenever y'all do do that, and it would really make a difference if you would take some time to do that today. But let's review the first six uh, before we close out. Endurance is an exercise in expectation setting. Those who endure plan for their plan to fail. Effort never sustainably exceeds belief. The results everyone wants come from the routines nobody sees. Coaching makes effort efficient and detachment is a difference maker. Hey, real quick, before we go, so many lessons that are very similar to these are the content that I put into our Worth It Wednesday email. That's where I really exercise my best thinking and by extension, my best writing. And I'm constantly testing new ideas and formulating new content in there. And so if you want to get that weekly email, it's called Worth It Wednesday. We send a principle worth learning, question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking every single Wednesday. Then you can sign up either at pathforgrowth.com or in the show notes of this episode. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.